Well, a warm welcome if you've joined us whilst we've been worshipping. Um, this morning, I want to take us back to the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, uh, why don't you open that to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 5 and 6. And we looked at a couple of weeks, uh, right back in January, actually, we looked at the book of Exodus, and then we looked again about a month ago. And this is the story of liberation of the people of Israel. They were walking in slavery. They were under Pharaoh. And then they were brought out and liberated. But this is not just a, a, a kind of historical event. This is a picture of the Christian story, the salvation story that we've all entered into. The Christian has been liberated from the enslaving power of sin. And I want to unpack that story for you uh, this morning. It's quite a long passage, so uh, Nat, Nat Mills is going to come and read it for us. Um, Exodus chapter 5 verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 9. Well, you're going to see two pictures in this story. One is of the, the misery of sin, and the other is of the, the beauty or the, the, the joy of deliverance. So I want you to listen out and see where you hear, hear where you hear that um, as Nat reads it to us. Exodus chapter 5. Yeah, Exodus chapter 5 down to Exodus 6, verse 9. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet you say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks." The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks, each day. 
They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God." And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Thank you, Nat. So right from the beginning then, what I want you to see first off as we unpack what is quite a long passage is that there are two contrasting pictures here. On one hand, we are confronted by the misery of slavery. We see the evil of Pharaoh. And there's an intentional contrast, I think, between then the deliverance that we see, the living God. We're almost meant to kind of set these two up to compare what life under Pharaoh versus life under God. And you can see as you go through that they are totally contrasting pictures. See, Pharaoh doesn't care about them. He, they come to him, they're exhausted, they're, they're, they're doing more, and, you know, they, they, they simply want to worship God, effectively, as far as he's concerned. They just want to go away for three days. Not an unreasonable request, by the way, kind of the Egyptian records suggest that that kind of thing did happen um, in those days, so to speak. And yet he says no. And actually, not only does he say no, he says actually the reason they're idle, that they're lazy, their request to go and worship God suggests that they're not working hard enough. And so I'm going to lay on them extra burdens so that they don't even think about these lies. See in verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. I am going to crush them, he says. He doesn't care about them. And then contrast that with the living God who says, I've heard the suffering of my people. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves and I have remembered my covenant. He loves them. He's committed to them. Pharaoh is just using them and abusing them. But the living God has heard their cries and will bring them the freedom, the, the, the liberation that he told them he would. 
For Pharaoh, they'll do all the work and they'll never be free. And yet the living God is the one who will free them. He will do the work. See, in chapter 6, verse 6 to 8, it says, I will, I will, I will. The living God is saying, no, I am the one who will bring them freedom. They must cooperate. They must kind of respond to his uh, declaration that he'll bring them freedom. But it's the living God who will deliver them. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to my people, to be my people, and I will be your God. So right there, we've got the contrasting pictures. And actually, really, remember what I said right at the beginning, that this Exodus story is the narrative of the Christian life. It says... You know, you'll see this all the way through the New Testament. This story becomes the kind of framework for understanding what it means to become a Christian. It says, you were once walking in slavery to sin, under the, uh, Satan, and walking under the prince, um, obeying the prince of the air, walking under slavery to sin, and, you, and Christ has redeemed you. He's liberated you. He's brought you out from slavery and you're now serving a new master. This is the Christian story. So now you're adopted. You're not kind of got generic freedom, but you've got freedom now to obey the living God. This is our story. I want to unpack these kind of what I think are three scenes in this story. The misery of slavery under Pharaoh, the joy of deliverance, and the promised land to come. And I want to unpack each of these and say, what do they tell us about the salvation that we've received? I wonder, why is this so relevant for us? Well, first of which, it seems really, really clear that Moses is facing a little bit of a choice here. Remember, see in verse 23, uh, 22 and 23, um, He's gone to Pharaoh. He's been obedient. Remember last time I told you, we looked at a month ago, Pharaoh told Moses to go to, uh, to, uh, to Pharaoh and to, te- and to let, tell him to let his people go. And so Moses has done that, but it seems like he's failed. He's saying, where are you, God? In verse 22 and 23, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses is complaining, saying, where were you, God? When you prom- I thought you promised that you'd bring liberation and you've not done anything. We've suffered as a result. Things have got worse for us. Now we've got to make bricks without straw. And yet God then reveals, him, reveals his plan to him. It's like saying, no, 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 look, look at me. Look who I am. Look at the deliverance I've promised to you. Trust me. And so there is a choice before Moses right at this moment. Will you trust the living God and walk towards the deliverance he's given you? Or will you stay in slavery? And right now, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're watching from home, I want to suggest to you that that is the choice that the the Christian, that God invites you to make. He says you are walking in slavery, under the slavery of sin, and now come and receive the freedom that you were made for. Come and serve me. Don't no longer say uh, serve these desires and idols that will destroy you. That is the choice for the person who's not a Christian, but it is actually not just a kind of one-off choice at the beginning of the Christian life. This is a daily choice in the life of the Christian. Joshua, this day, choose who you will serve. Will you go back to serving old idols, old desires that belong to your old life? Or will you walk in the freedom that the Lord provides? That is a daily choice in the life of the Christian. And what I want to provoke you to see this morning really is, 
to embrace the liberation that Christ has won for you. To embrace the liberation that Christ has won for you. And you do that in two ways. One, in walking in this new freedom. Walking in obedience. But the other way you do that is by experiencing joy in the, uh, this deliverance. What I mean by that is, I think this speaks to the great sense of disappointment that many people feel in the Christian life. There may be a sense of disappointment, a sense of defeat, of sin, like sin just always around, my, around me. I'm not, I'm not liberated. You look at this story and say, no, this is not my, me. I'm, I'm still walking bound by sin. It feels like it's my experience all the time. Also, I think it speaks to that perhaps even unconscious um, worm in your head that says things would be better if I was not following Jesus or things would be easier if I was not following Jesus. The great irony of this story is in Exodus chapter 16, the people of Israel look back on this slavery, this misery that we've just seen, and wish they were there. They're saying, where's God? They're complaining about something or other, but it's not really important. What is interesting is they want to be back here. And what I want you to see is the kind of perversity, the ridiculousness of wanting to be back in slavery. You know that time when you look at the life of of your non-Christian friends and you say, I kind of wish I had the freedom they do. I kind of wish that I could go and sin with no sense of guilt. I could go and do whatever they're doing and live in that, in that lifestyle. I wish I could do that. I, I'd be surprised if that thought doesn't cross your mind from time to time. Maybe you have those kind of little mental fantasies of kind of a life not following Jesus in some way or, or not certainly without the, some aspect that, that Christ calls you to die to. Something, I wish I didn't have to do this. So I want you to see the perversity of longing for Egypt. But more than that, I want you to feel the sense of liberation that Christ intends to bring in our lives. Liberation should feel liberating. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think you will experience a struggle with sin in the Christian life. But my conviction is that many Christians do not feel as they should when you think about what's happened to them. Think about what it means to be liberated. The burdens have been lifted off you. Think about this, you know, literally the, the yoke of slavery. He talks about being lifted off the, the Hebrews. Think about that sense of relief that they should be feeling. But they don't, do they? Chapter 6, verse 9, at the end of the story. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So they didn't believe him, or at least they didn't respond. They've just been told they're going to be emancipated. Think about how they should have responded. And I think that's just a picture of us as Christians, that we've been liberated from the power of sin. We're meant to feel the burdens being lifted off us, and yet it doesn't feel like that. So I want to speak into that, to reshape our posture, to feel the joy of deliverance, to understand your place in the story, that you were once walking in slavery to sin, but that is not where you are now. So let's look first then. You must see the misery of sin. You must see the misery of sin. If we look at chapter five, what we see is life is miserable under Pharaoh. And I think this is a a visual picture, a visceral image of the misery and slavery of sin. The state of a society that has rejected God. If you're not a Christian, you need to see this story in chapter five and see yourself there. But this is describing where you are. It says you need freedom from where you, the place you currently occupy. But if you are a Christian, 
I want you to hear this two ways. One, to know this is where you were, to thank God that this is not where you are, but it's also a warning, saying don't turn back to the state of slavery to sin. Don't wish you were there. Don't dabble with it. It's not where you are now. You're in, you're in, you're, you've been liberated. Let's sort of look at then. You can see the misery of sin in a couple of ways. First of all, you can see it in the, the oppressive actions of Pharaoh, the suffering that he brings on the Israelite people. We are confronted by the misery caused by human sin. Think about Pharaoh, how he just doesn't care about them. They ask for less. They ask, they ask, sorry, they ask for three days off to worship, and instead he piles on burdens on them. The Hebrew overseers are beaten because they don't then deliver. It's like humanly impossible for them to deliver the same number of bricks as they could before because now they have to go and look for straw and so they get beaten. He doesn't care about them. Well, I, maybe this feels extreme, but I think there's great parallels with our contemporary society. You can see it in a number of different ways. You can see it in the way that so many in our culture, or at least some, are, are willing to attack their fellow human beings a failure to treat them with the honour and dignity that they deserve, of the failure to see them as made in the image of God. I think we can see this in two very prominent cultural issues right now. One is, uh, you know, because of Sarah Everyard's murder and all sorts of other things we've seen in, in the news, we are very aware of, a, of the, the violence against women, violence against women and girls, sexual abuse, the prevalence of domestic violence... What I want to suggest to you is actually that has the same roots as what's going on here. That Pharaoh is using power, using power to abuse the, uh, those who are made in the image of God with no reference to them. He's kind of like saying, these people are just mine to be abused. I don't care about their value. I can do what I want. Isn't that what's going on when um, a, a man uses his physical strength to oppress or abuse a woman? Isn't that exactly the same of using his power of course, that's not, that's not a, a, ge- a general blanket statement of the relationships between men and women, but it's saying, don't we see so often the toxic blend of power and sin together resulting in oppression and an attack on someone who's made in the image of God? It's saying the greatest uh, defense against such a evil is the conviction that men and women are made in the image of God, that each person is valuable, and because each person is valuable, no one should be oppressed or abused. That's why the Christian faith was so um, countercultural in the Roman Empire when, uh, at the time, men essentially could kind of have their sexual license with whoever they wanted. They had, they could, you know, a, Roman, a Roman man had kind of free reign. He could have sex with his wife, but have a, have a mistress and whoever else. And the Bible was totally countercultural. It said, no, husbands, your, your body, you're giving your body to your wife. So you've got se- there's no longer this kind of permission to sexual license for the man says, no, actually, there's an equality and a commitment to each other because she's made in the image of God. So it's, an, it's, an, it's a kind of great challenge to the way that women might be oppressed or abused in that way. Think about racism. That's the other way this, this story speaks. So of, often we see patterns of prejudice, of um, systemic patterns of mistreatment. Of course, this was brought to our attention very viscerally last year with the murder of George Floyd. Recently, the, the Asian... Uh, shootings in Atlanta. Isn't there the same kind of pride often underlying that racism? You see how Pharaoh has that kind of pride kind of saying, I can do what I want, verse 5, verse 1. But Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey this voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
That same pride is often behind the same ethnic pride that fuels racism. The same inability to see the intrinsic worth and dignity of every person made in the image of God. Calling these things sin is not to trivialize them or to kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, we'll just kind of get on with life then. No, it's to root this, them in the corruption at the heart of humanity. To see the great offense against the living God and to say that the misery that we see in this world is caused by the problem of sin. To connect those two together. I think that's really important that we see that. Because then when we see the great liberation that Christ brings, the great end to sin or end to the the dominating power of sin in our lives now and one day a new creation without sin, we say sin is on the way out. It speaks to our despair that when we see all this evil around us, we say no, there is a day coming when that won't be the case anymore. But even I think we can see this in a more general sense in every human being, in the heart of every human being, that's proud independence of Pharaoh. I will do what I want and nothing will stop me. Well, I mean, you see that in the kind of crude atheism of our culture of saying, you know, two fingers up to God, I'll do what I want. But I think you also see it in a kind of what might be described as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the kind of dominating ethic of our age that says, I can do what I, I, I need to have the freedom to express my desires. But what we need to realize is that ethic causes great suffering. It's that ethic that leads a husband to say, well, you know, I just have this desire to leave my wife. And I just need to fulfill that desire. And then it causes untold suffering to his family in doing so. Expressive individualism emphasizes a freedom. Emphasizes the idea, I need to be able to fulfill my desires. But what we don't realize is, is that very freedom that then causes misery that causes misery. It's the Pharaoh's freedom, so to speak, that causes the Hebrew oppression here. So we see it, the misery of sin. We also see the slavery of sin. In a sense, what we're talking about is the, 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 being a victim of sin, but we also see the other side of the coin. It's actually those who, well, we, in fact, all of us, insofar as we um, indulge in sin before Christ enters into our lives, are controlled by our desires. Essentially, we live in a culture that strongly desires freedom. And there's a great tragic irony in this passage because it says you desire to be free. In fact, that's why you would resist the idea of following God because you believe that to follow God would be to kind of constrain your freedom, which you don't want. You desire to be free, but ironically, you're not free. You're controlled by your desires. You're enslaved to your sinful passions. And they're saying there is, Christ has come to liberate you. You see this in a, in a, a number of places, places in the New Testament. 2 Peter uh, describes false teachers, but I think it could be described a number of different influences in our culture. It says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. Saying you have all sorts of desires, and those desires you think you have freedom, actually they are enslaving you. Titus chapter 3, once, two, we, uh, we, once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. We became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. You think you're free, but you're not. That's what he's saying to our modern culture. What does it mean? Now, you might say, I'm, I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the, I can control my own fate. What are you talking about? I'm a, slave. I'm a slave to my desires. Well, first of all, you are controlled by what you worship. 
Every human being is a worshipper. Every human being must establish some kind of ultimate in their lives, something that they're living for. No one can bear a kind of entirely random existence of just following any desire they feel. No, there must be something that you're living for, some purpose or meaning, some ultimate that you've established, whether that be conscious or unconscious. He's saying, when you do that, when you establish, this is, by the way, what the Bible calls as idolatry. It says you are made to worship the living God. You are made to glorify him. He was meant to be your purpose and meaning, to worship him and enjoy him forever. And yet we have constructed for ourselves all sorts of other things that we worship, all sorts of other things that we almost unconsciously live for, that we bow down to. And the problem is those desires, that worship will control you. I think the most prominent example in our city, and I've been fallen foul of this many times, I would say something I've worshipped, been liable to worship, is success. The worship of success. And what that worship does, when you say, I'm living to be successful either in my, the eyes of my peers or in my own eyes, um, is that controls you. That's the reason why some people in the city can't stop working. Because it's not just that, they, you know, that there's someone over their back beating them like, like Pharaoh here. No, the slave is within themselves. <laughs> they can't stop working because they just need to keep on achieving. Because they need to get more success. Every time they achieve one level of success, maybe that's fine for a while. But then they start, maybe start to, I need, I need more. I, like there's a kind of sense of almost inadequacy comes again. And then the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. That way that the desire for success becomes a kind of controlling slave master in your life. Or what about this way that sin never... By the way, it controls you because it never satisfies you. Because whatever you idolize, whether it be your beauty or your, or your success, your performance, the approval of others, whatever you worship, the great irony is it, you'll never feel like you have it. You never feel like, so if you worship beauty, you'll never feel beautiful because you'll always be worrying about what other people think of your beauty. Or if you worship um, performance, you'll never feel like you've performed enough. You know, Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Just one more dollar. He was the richest man in the world. Just one more dollar. You never feel like you have enough. Your idols will never deliver. And so they will keep you in. Just like here in this story, the Israelites are working harder and harder. They're even trying to appease Pharaoh. At one point, the the Hebrew masters go to Pharaoh and start saying, oh, your servants, they're describing themselves as your servants. They're kind of trying to appease Pharaoh. And of course, they they can appease them all they want. They're just going to keep them working harder and harder and they're never going to find freedom. And it's the same way with the controlling power of idolatry in our lives. I think it's also true because sin never satisfies. We talk about this the way that you know, certain desires in our lives, I think about lust is one that we often think about in this area, where it, kind of, it promises comfort, and it does provide some small false comfort, but then it goes. And so you look for more, and you look for more, and you look for more, and, it kind of, and you get in this cycle, this cycle of sin. That's why we talk, the Bible talks about like, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. It feels unattractive at some level, but you go back to it because you believed it provides some kind of comfort to you, so almost subconsciously. So you think you're free, but you're not because you're controlled by what you worship and the desires in your heart. But even more, I think we are even exposed here to the, the results of sin. Think about how it leaves these Hebrews, the slavery they're in, it leaves them in despair, leaves them feeling empty. In verse 9, the broken spirit that they have. You know, if you indulge in sin, if you kind of give yourself over to it, you, you, you pursue it, longing for that kind of satisfaction, but you never find it. And so after a while, you just feel exhausted and empty. 
like it's never going to come. I just think there's so many people can relate to that. Interestingly, I think we can also see one other really uh, interesting thing here, which is distraction. The way that sometimes we see this in our city, that there's a lingering sense of dissatisfaction. The idols don't satisfy, but yet we're so caught up in our work that we're actually distracted away from that reality. You see in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, when Pharaoh says, let heavier work be laid on men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying works. He's basically hoping to consume them with work so much that they become distracted from their need for liberation. And I just think that's true. When I, I, speak, I was speaking to a couple of guys from my, my salt group. Um, kind of, we, they were, one of them was describing this kind of great crushing sense of needing to establish your purpose. In a world without God, how can I, what, what is my purpose? I've got to find it in all sorts of different ways. And the other per, another person was, was, was in saying, yeah, absolutely, I can relate to that. It feels crushing. And I said, well, why are people not banging on my door? Why, are people, why, is, why is everyone in this city not saying, I need, I need a purpose meaning? They said, ah, oh, because they kind of feel, feel it for a moment and then... Either maybe someone says to them, don't worry about such existential questions as who God is. Just get on with your life. You know, you heard the atheist bus campaign. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And one of them just reiterated, like, as he was growing up, he kind of feeling this great existential itch of there must be more and what's my purpose? But people around him just be like, oh, don't think about silly things like that. Just get on with your life. Or the way we get so consumed in our work and our day-to-day rhythms that we just ignore actually that we're enslaved like this. And say, no, the living God has come to bring you liberation. Don't let your dis- the, the kind of exhausting patterns that we see in this passage and that many people live by to distract them from the, liber- from the hope of deliverance. And then finally, I think that probably this speaks really for us when we think about the misery of sin here, the misery of slavery of sin. To you who are Christians, this says, don't go back. Don't go back to the misery and slavery of sin. Don't indulge these passions. You were slaves, but you've died to your old life. Don't wish you were there. See the misery that this brings. Don't submit yourself to slavery. Romans 6 says, Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Saying you have a new master now. I think this also speaks to the way that so many of us, we kind of dabble with sin. You just kind of like tolerate a small amount in your life, like not a very, we probably unconsciously there's lots more, but there's a sense to which sometimes you kind of think, oh yeah, I'll just do that. Yeah, you kind of justify it to yourself in a way, but what you don't see is A, that it's, it's, it will control you at some level, it will pull you in, so to speak, it promises little, it promises a little and then just promises a little bit more and pulls you in. But what we've seen is that we have a new master now who loves us. We have something so much better. I remember talking to one of my, two of my friends about some sin, patterns of sin in my life and and they just really just challenged me and said, look, that is, the, those, that is the kind of actions of a man who's feeling despair, a man who's feeling no hope in the world. But that's not where you are. You're, you have a new master who's, who loves you. Don't go, you know, like C.S. Lewis talks about a boy who, who makes mud pies when actually there's sand at the beach. Sin is like that. You're making mud pies when there's something so much greater. So let's give thanks that this is no longer where we are. Without God, trapped in a cycle of self-destructive sin and misery. We still experience the effects of sin. We still experience temptation. I'm not saying the liberation means you won't experience a battle with sin. But we are no longer slaves to sin. So then that brings me on to our next point. You must embrace the joyful deliverance. See the great contrast between sin-ravaged Egypt and the promise of deliverance. 
This is not just a kind of theological event that happened that Christ has liberated you. No, this should affect our lives. This should change our lives. But, and, and, and most crucially, this speaks to how many of us don't feel liberated. We feel defeated and enslaved. I want to challenge you that this should be a source of great joy. This picture of deliverance is, is our deliverance. You can see it. The, the similarities are uncanny. You know, in verse 5, he talks about a kind of commitment to them, a covenantal commitment. Well, in Luke's gospel, uh, Zechariah makes a very similar point that basically the living God has come to, really, uh, to liberate them, has come to send someone to save them out of that same covenantal commitment. In Luke chapter 1, he, it's, it's fascinating that it's that same, it's like we see the same character of God thousands of years later. He's still committed to his people and he sends a horn of salvation. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my saviour for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Oh, sorry, that's Mary. Ignore Mary. Zechariah. Um, I think it's not sounding what I was intending to. Um, Verse 68-72. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Our God is committed to us. He was committed to the Hebrew slaves, saying, look, I promised I was going to release you. Hundreds of years later, I'm coming back now to do that. And so too, Zechariah is rejoicing in that same commitment to his people, to us the people of God, that he has come to send a saviour. But you see it all the way through this. This speaks of liberation. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. I will deliver you from slavery to them, or I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I think that same liberation we see on the cross. See, when Jesus uh, is on the cross, actually what he's doing is defeating the power of sin, death, and Satan. It's also a a substitute. He takes the judgment of God on himself on our behalf. But he also defeats the power of Satan, sin, and death. He says in Colossians chapter 2, it talks about how he put the spiritual rulers and authorities to shame on the cross. Saying that it's like the cross is a great satanic attempt to denigrate the dignity and majesty of God. To humiliate Christ. And Satan, kind of maybe Satan as minions, feel like they've won on the cross. What they don't realize is this is the moment when they will be humiliated. They will be put to shame as Christ has victory over sin. And actually he provides a way of liberation so that he is resurrected three days later. He destroys the power of death so that all who believe in him will experience a resurrection at the last day and will spend eternity with him. Destroyed the power of death. Destroyed Satan's authority. And one day he will destroy Satan's influence on the world when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. He destroyed the power of sin. For all those who have come to Christ have died with Christ. They've died to their old life where sin dominated and they've received a new life where Christ is the Lord of their lives. So we see this liberation in the Christian life. We see redemption. Notice how he he uses the language in verse six. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Who is the arm of the Lord? Christ himself. That's how Isaiah 53 describes him. 
It's describing the plagues, yeah, this, but no question. But it's also speaking of the outstretched arm who will come and give his life for us, who will purchase us. When you redeem a slave in, the, in, that, in that culture, in the Israelite culture, you would pay to bring someone out of slavery. Christ pays. Christ, the mighty acts of judgment aren't on Pharaoh, as they will see that in the plagues. No, that mighty act of judgment is on Christ himself. God gives his son to receive that judgment on our behalf. And we're not just freed for kind of for just to roam free in this world. No, we are given an adoption. We have a new master now. Notice in verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Saying you have a new master now, you've been brought into freedom. And this should practically change us. It's not just a kind of theological event that happened. This should work its way out into our lives. And yet, some of you will feel a great sense of defeat when we talk about being liberated from sin. You say, no, my life feels nothing like that. Now, I think it's important we, we stop and say, it is true that as a Christian, you, you should, it is a mark of health that you will feel the convicting power of the Lord on, regu- on a regular basis. That the Lord will point things out to you in your life through his word, through his preaching, um, through brothers and sisters, friends. You will be challenged and convicted about the sin in your life. That is, part, that is a mark of health. If you never feel convicted about your sin, that's a problem. That would be a sign that maybe things weren't right in your walk with the Lord. But... Equally, the Lord does not want us um, enslaved by sin. What it means to be liberated by sin is to be liberated from the controlling power of sin. The New Testament is so clear again and again. It says you are not slaves to this. You may allow these desires to bubble up in your life and you may then kind of quench those desires, satisfy those desires. But no, you're free from this. Do not allow this to enslave you. In fact, what it really says is that you've been given a new desire. A new desire to worship and obey the living God. And that desire is the mark, I think, ultimately, that you've been liberated from the power of slavery to sin. If you don't have a desire to obey God, that would be when I'd question whether you're a follower of Christ. If you don't have any desire to follow him and obey him, that's maybe a problem. But it will say, no, that you should experience some degree of difference. Difference to your old life. Difference to what your life would have looked like. So how does Christ liberate us practically? Well, first of all, he gives us a new identity to conform to. We are shaped by how we see ourselves. You can think about this in all sorts of ways. The person who thinks of themselves as athletic will constantly probably be doing exercise. The person who, who thinks of themselves as really intellectual will probably be reading more. We, we are shaped by how we see ourselves. And the Bible is really clear. You are a new creation. You have a new identity. Most of the time, the New Testament almost always describes you as saints, not sinners. Yes, you will sin, but that's not primarily who you are. You are saints who sin, not primarily, not only sinners. The Bible says, no, you're a new creation. And the question really is, have you forgotten who you are? That is the question you must always ask yourself. Secondly, the Son exposes the depth of our sin. Jesus, when Jesus comes into your life, when you're walking with him, he will shine a light on the sin in your life. Like, you know, when you're in a club and the end of the evening comes and the lights are turned up and suddenly you see the full griminess of the, of the club and you think, oh, this is really a bit gross. And some people leave before that, just for that moment, because they want to avoid that. I think there's that sense that Jesus will come into your life and expose all the grimy bits. 
but he doesn't expose it to then leave you in a pit of self-pity and guilt. Actually, he does it in a kind of medicinal way, a remedial way. He, does it, he points the sin out in your life so that you would come to him and get rid of that, to die to that. He's doing it for your You've got to hear his love. He's got to hear both his love and his compassion on you when he points out the sin in your lives. But probably the most significant thing is that the power of an expulsive affection. We have a new desire to obey God, which makes sin look less appealing. Think about this. When you see the people of God, they no longer worship Pharaoh, they're no longer enslaved to Pharaoh because they have a new father who loves them. The reason why the people of God ultimately want to live and worship God is because they have a deep and abiding affection for him, a love for him. They see the beauty of Christ's heart. They see his compassion on them. They see his, just the way he, he, he draws close to them and runs towards them when they're in sin. And when they see this new master, when they see his love and his beauty, that is what draws them to him. That is what will say, I'm being an idiot. I don't want to play with this sin when I have a living God who satisfies more than that. It's like feasting on some really unhealthy snack food. I speak as a, as a, a perennial snacker. Um, fe- feasting on some per, uh, snack food that's really not very good for you and doesn't really satisfy versus a feast that the living God has prepared for you. But really, I want to speak about how this liberation should feel liberating. It should taste sweet. My concern is that we feel burdened Why doesn't this liberation feel sweet? One reason, I think, is because redemption has become a system, not a person. We've forgotten what it... it, it, We almost feel like uh, the Christ's redemption is like just some system that we've come into, that Christ has brought us out. We've forgotten that behind the redemption, behind the liberation, is a loving God who, who has come to rescue us, who desires good for us. I think another reason is... We think Christ is reluctant to forgive us. When we think about our own sin, we think of Christ as almost coming to us a little bit like a teacher or a parent who's kind of saying to you, oh, you've done it again. Okay, here's your forgiveness, but you know, better, you know, please sort it out for next time. Don't, don't, I don't want to see you back here you know, if a teacher said that to you. What you're missing, I think, is the heart of Christ, that Christ delights in pouring out his grace upon you, that his character, is, his face is turned towards you in the battle against sin. He, he delights in showing his grace to his children. That is his character. Don't hang back from him. Don't kind of sit in a, of, a puddle of guilt and condemnation. No, come to the living God who delights in pouring out his grace on you. See Christ's desire to, bring, to, to eliminate sin from your life. It's, you know, some of you have put this weight on your own shoulders. You're saying, I, you know, I will get better. No, hear, the, hear this in, in chapter 6. It's God who will liberate you. It is God who will deliver you out of, his, out of the slavery to sin. It is his work in your life. Of course, you must cooperate with it. Of course, there's a part for us to play. But don't just put it on your shoulders. See that Christ has a deep desire to make you holy. See his desire to bring you into flourishing and freedom. It's not all on your shoulders. We need to grasp the liberating power of the gospel. Think about the way, at the end of this passage, it says, I, will br- who is, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Do we look like people who've come from out from under the burden of sin? Or do we look like people who are carrying burdens? 
You no longer have the burden of trying to prove yourself to the world or justify your existence. You have a a new purpose from your master. You no longer need to fear appeasing your idols or you no longer need to worry about what people will think of you or whatever whatever else you might be given to worshipping. If you're unsuccessful, if you're not beautiful or if people reject you, it doesn't matter because you've found a, a, a thing which is far better to worship. You no longer need to serve your desires. If you have unfulfilled longings in this life, that's okay. Because your deepest longings will be fulfilled by Christ. And a day is coming when all your longings will be fulfilled. You need no longer be trapped in a cycle of unhelpful behavior. No longer feeling like, oh, I just, I'm just, I'm just going to give up now. And it says you are, you, are, you are no longer slaves. Walk out. If you've submitted yourself to slavery, there's always the option. There's always the possibility of walking out of that slavery to sin. Have you forgotten the great liberation that Christ has rendered into your life? It's no surprise here that the people of Israel are given a whole series of feasts to celebrate and to to remember the liberation they've received. Because we too need to remember to re-enter into this narrative time and again and remember we are not slaves to sin. We have been liberated. We have a new master who loves us and there's no reason to fear or bow down to idols. We need to carry we need to embody the joy of deliverance. That is, that is part of what it means here to be those who've liberated from the slavery to sin. And finally, you should look forward to the promised land. See, we can't misplace where we are in the story. We are those who've been liberated from sin, but we are, we are like the people of Israel wandering in the desert, longing, looking forward to that day when they will be in the promised land. What does this promised land mean for us? Well, it's talking about the new creation. For the Christian, the promised land is the promise that one day Christ will come back and establish his reign on this earth. A world without sin and its destructive power. A world without abuse. A world without racism. A world without fear, without suffering, without anxiety. Where children are no longer living indoors for fear of the evil that lurks around the corner where every human being is living with dignity and joy, without any uh, tendency to run after vain idols that don't satisfy. A world of peace, of flourishing and dignity and no shame. Think about that, what that would look like, what that would feel like, a world where there is no shame because everybody knows that they're loved. Everybody knows that they have dignity and they're made in the image of God and they enjoy and love and honour each other rather than disparage and shame one another. Think about a world with the restoration of God's presence, where Christ dwells bodily with his people, where we will see him face to face. But more than that, the whole world will have the kind of aroma of Christ. It will taste and smell sweeter. The world will be restored. Remember in Romans 8, it speaks of um, the creation itself groaning, longing. It's almost like when we left Eden, we kind of took the, the, the birds and the animals and the, and the plants and everything with us. It, the world is under the same curse of sin and slavery like we are before Christ. And say, no, the, the, when, the, when Christ comes back to dwell on this earth, everything about this world will be renewed. Everything that's broken will be restored. J.R. Tolkien, everything sad will become untrue. This is the promised land that we're longing for. This speaks to that great despair and hopelessness that we feel as we look at a broken world and long for everything to be different. It speaks to our anger against abuse and hatred and evil. But we don't just hunker down and wait for that moment. No, we embody that new creation. 
I just think this is fascinating. The Bible says you are a new creation. And in being a new creation, in embodying that, in living obediently to Christ, in resisting temptation, you, new creations, point to the new creation to come. You have a role now to follow Christ and to obey him and to kind of display the liberating power of the gospel, to reject temptation, to die to self, and to display what the new creation will one day, to just give people a glimpse of what the new creation reality looks like. What a privilege, what a responsibility, and what's more, we have that privilege together as a community that we embody the new creation reality together. We honour one another. We have no abuse or, or we, have, we have kind of male and female relationships that, are, uh, that don't carry the same um, evil that we see maybe in the world. Like there's not this kind of predatory lust or there's not a kind of uh, dishonouring of one another, of using what, uh, strength to oppress or abuse. No, instead we lift one another up. We love each other. <laughs> We embody the, the, the love and the honouring and the dignity and the no shame that will come in the new creation. It means countercultural relationships between those of different backgrounds and races because we show that we are all made in the image of God as we live together. This is beautiful, brothers and sisters, and we have a privilege of embodying that new creation reality now to point to the new creation to come, to point to the fact that there is a promised land, to say to a world that is despairing at evil and sin and say, brother, there is a hope. There is hope and come and receive that liberation. Come and enter into a community that's been liberated. What a privilege. It means we look forward to this. You know, in the, the Jewish people in the diaspora throughout history, the last 2,000 years, often will celebrate the Passover meal by saying, next year in Jerusalem. They're, you know, wherever they are, even I, I don't come from a religious Jewish background, but we'd celebrate Passover with my family, and they would be at the end of the meal say, next year in Jerusalem, as if, like, say, one day we'll celebrate this in Jerusalem. Well, I think as Christians, we need to be like that, longing for that new creation, longing for that day we're going to be in the promised land. They're, they're kind of celebrating, they're, they're looking forward to the return. And so we, too, want to be living in that reality of longing for that new creation. So I want to invite you, invite you to... to If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear the invitation to find the freedom, to find the liberation, to find the deliverance that the living God wants for you, that you no longer are enslaved to your desires and your passions and come and find the freedom that God offers. And if you're a Christian, I want you to hear that you're no longer slaves, that Christ has liberated you, to embrace the holiness that comes from the new life that you've received, but more than that, to walk in joy and and the confident sense that we have been liberated to point to the new creation reality. What an absolutely amazing privilege. Let's live in that freedom. Not the freedom to do what we want, but the freedom to obey the new master. Let me pray for us. The guys are going to come up. Lord Jesus, we want to just thank you for that liberation. I want to thank you that even though we were far from you, even though we were walking under that old master, that you have brought us out from, under, from, out from slavery. You've given us a new master. And we, we just want to thank you, Lord, that you are the best master that we could ever hope for. That your love is better than life. And our lips will praise you. That you were covenantally committed to your people to bring them out of slavery, to bring us out of slavery. Lord, we thank you for the new freedom that we found in you the new peace that we have, the love and contentment that comes not from bowing down to idols but from bowing down to the living God. 
Help us to walk in that freedom. Help us, if we feel controlled by sin, help us to come and walk in that freedom. Help us to know our identity, that we're no longer slaves, that we are sons of the living God. We praise you for that reality, Lord. We praise you for the liberation that you've brought. Help us to show the world the new creation that is coming, to embody that, to be new creations ourselves and to embody that as a community. Come, Lord Jesus. We cannot do it on ourselves, on our own. We thank you that you will, that you have and you will deliver and liberate your people. We praise you, Lord. Amen.